You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is Thursday, August 19th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice, and we've been talking about the Brahma Viharas for the last couple of weeks tonight, I thought I would focus on mudita practice or sympathetic joy practice. We do tend to look at it from an attachment point of view. Um, But just to touch into it, the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes are a a group of skills um, that you develop. Uh, We might call that the intentional development of positivity. each one is designed for particular negative effects. Uh, the, uh, the four in the Theravada way of looking at it is metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka, or uh, loving kindness practice, compassion practice, sympathetic joy practice, and equanimity practice. The far enemy of uh, loving kindness practice is anger or hatred, the far enemy of Compassion practices cruelty, the far enemy of um, sympathetic joy practice is envy and jealousy, envy around uh, material or social position, jealousy around interpersonal relationships, and uh, uh, equanimity is a craving aversion and unconsciousness. The near enemy is a little bit different. The near enemy is um, the thing that it's easy to mistake the actual uh, activity of the uh, uh, of the, the abode for the near enemy of it. In um, loving kindness practice. Uh, the near enemy is sentimentality. The main difference between uh, loving kindness is the centering of the experience in the present moment and holding the mind state of uh, loving kindness. Sentimentality is generally co- uh, generated by thinking, and so you slip out of the experience of the present moment into a thought process. Uh, that generates an emotional state. So in some sense, it's a kind of self-generated emotion where you've slipped out of the experience of the present moment into the thought process itself. Compassion practice, the near enemy is uh, sympathy. Um, Compassion is a empathetic practice, which means that you're actually engaged in the activity of empathy which means an exchanging of your feeling states with somebody else. And sympathy is an internal uh, process that doesn't require an empathetic experience. And so uh, that's the main difference. You slip out of the present moment and out of the empathetic experience into a generated uh, experience. Uh, Again, a thinking process, which is the near enemy. In a sympathetic joy practice, you're attempting to generate a mind state where you're celebratory or joyful around other people 
succeeding in the things that they want to do. Um, we might, from an attachment point of view, call that the uh, function of expressed delight in somebody else uh, and, and things that they're doing uh, for themselves. The near enemy then is to root for somebody because you get a direct benefit from it. Um, the example that is often given is that you root for a particular sports team to win because you get a, a kick out of your team winning, but it can be uh, lots of different things. You, you root for somebody to do well because you can use their position to uh, develop or enhance your own position. And in um, equanimity, the, the near enemy is indifference. So uh, equanimity is an active state where you're imbalanced and indifferent means that you're disengaged. So uh, I like to teach this as a, a jhana or high concentration practice uh, so that what we're really looking for is a way to cause a particular mind state to arise or a view to arise, maintain that view uh, and use it as an object of concentration. Um, the reason that I like to do that is because it helps develop the capacity for, uh, in some sense, mentalizing. Uh, when we look at this from an attachment perspective, what we see is that this mentalizing skill is, is uh, 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 a way of understanding what your experience is uh, and uh, making sense out of it. One of the things we're always talking about in, in meditation is to really take in the experience uh, clearly and then represent it in a way that's accurate in terms of what's actually happening and to mentalize well is to be able to do that and to not mentalize well means that your capacity to recognize your own experiences and reactions and how that changes the way that you create the experience of self and world isn't as available to you so that the the distortions uh, that can arise uh, in the, the forming of conceptual reality from ultimate reality go undetected and then um, that creates intentions which are, are, are not accurate, which lead to actions which lead to karmic traces. Uh, we're looking for a way out of generating unskillful actions uh, and then having to de deal with uh, uh, less unfortunate uh, karmic outcomes from that. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we talk about in terms of attachment in, in, in people that are just have the capacity to do that is that they had the experience of their caregivers uh, reflecting about their experience, uh, particularly early when um, it's a pre-verbal, um, can you imagine crawling around in, in, in diapers and your caregivers uh, uh, being with you and speculating between themselves what was actually going on with you and then inquiring of you what was actually going on 
and in the, that early experience before language was born, where it's simply recognizing the way that they're looking at you and, and describing it, even though they might be using words you don't really assign meaning to them. Uh, the activity of somebody else wondering about what your internal states were and, and engaging you in a conversation, but also engaging somebody else in that so that you see uh, as an infant that people are interested in what's actually happening with you. They're interested in what your internal experience is uh, and how that might be different uh, as an experience uh, and a sense of value uh, from uh, childhood experiences where that actually didn't happen, where they weren't interested or they couldn't uh, understand what was happening. And so that activity for people who uh, tend to be securely functioning is the thing that teaches them that uh, capacity to be self-reflective in that way. So understanding what a mind state or a view is, uh, the view operates or the mind state operates in between ultimate reality and conceptual reality. And then understanding that you can affect that view um, and that it changes the way ultimate reality is uh, made into conceptual reality. And that you have the capacity to change it in a beneficial way or an afflictive way uh, is really the heart of what the, the, these uh, um, practices in developing the capacity for positivity are about. Equanimity, of course, is a, a, a mind state of balance. And so you have the uh, conversion of uh, ultimate reality, the pure sensing experience into conceptual reality, and it creates a kind of uh, a neutral picture so that the reflection of uh, the sensing experiences, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind are made into an internal representation of that that then is projected outward. And then on top of that, you can uh, layer in um, uh, positivities or positive states. So seeing clearly what is there and then inclining the mind, say, toward loving kindness or compassion or this uh, joyfulness. Is that all making sense so far? Christian. I'm curious about sort of your personal practice when you're going about your day. Are you like, you have like a systemized way, I guess not when you're meditating of like, I'm going to stay in meta mind or I'm going to cycle through these, these different mind states or I'm going to stay in equanimity or do you kind of use them really contextually for what, whatever's in the moment and what's coming up or... or because I don't know if my question is, makes sense or it's too broad. Well, it is a, a vast question. And so uh, I will try to break it into pieces so I can answer it. One aspect of this would be uh, where I started and where I am now. So in the beginning, I had to be relentless in, in training the mind out of 
um, generating constant negative states. Um, mainly the way that I regulated emotion was by generating anger. Anger, fear of sadness were the big uh, strategies I had for regulating emotion, and mainly anger was the one that I used. So I was constantly in a state of anger. And to train myself out of that took uh, a lot of effort and, and uh, you know, a doggedness to get that to shift. But if you look at where my mind is now, it doesn't do that anymore because I've trained it out of that. So in the beginning, uh, the capacity for positivity was really limited, and it took a lot of effort to, to shift that. But now that it's been shifted, I don't have to do that uh, kind of relentless practice anymore uh, in that way. Um, I did systematically, I tend to like systems and practice in a systematic way, go through the whole series of them, kind of like the way that I teach them practicing loving kindness, then practicing compassion, then practicing joy, then practicing uh, balance. Um, and now mainly uh, what I uh, am able to do is monitor uh, the mind states that I'm in, monitor the, the strategies for emotional regulation. And if I notice that the mind is inclining toward an afflictive strategy, uh, I suppress it and replace it. And the easiest uh, for me is just to do the simple metaphrase, may I be peaceful or may you be peaceful. Um, Does that mean that you sort of value spontaneity in your mind states unless they really get derailed, in which case you use the, the practice to bring you back and then you kind of let whatever mind state you know, would unfold, unfold? Well, what I'm mainly working on in my own practice is stabilizing awakened awareness so that that's the mind state that's just there all of the time. So longer and longer periods, awakened awareness is the main mind state that I operate th through. And then sometimes things happen which knock me off balance. And I, I, uh, I notice that uh, my mind is engaged in an afflictive self-generated emotion strategy to regulate the experience of the present moment and you're in, in that place that if you can come into the experience of the present moment and discover what's actually happening and then you can uh, quantize the experience that's uh, 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 exceeded the window of tolerance so that the mind needs to actively be engaged in emotional regulation then you can drop out of the uh, the or drop back into the window of tolerance and then uh, attempt to hold the mind state of awakened awareness. If you can't do that, then you have to deal with the afflictive strategies if they're present and address them in a different way, which I, I tend to use uh, uh, metaphrases as a way of uh, um, dealing with uh, the residual afflictive uh, emotional regulation strategies that I have. Um, uh, you know, it, it isn't that you come to a place where you don't have the experiences and reactions to the present moment. It's that you're able to manage them in a way that's more skillful than, than maybe what you uh, came up with. Um, 
we mainly know the strategies that our family systems used. And my family system was not really that skillful. I mean, really, if you look at it, the main way of regulating in, in our in the family system I grew up in was drinking too much. Um, that is not actually what I consider the most skillful strategy. <laughs> Uh, we did have other skills like humor and sort of uh, um, thinking of my my grandmother on my mother's side. She was she could be very kind and very tender, um, but she could also be easily offended and uh, harsh. Uh, and she had sort of rigid ideas of sex roles and what was manly and what wasn't. And if you were in, in, in some sense too vulnerable, she would, and you were a man, she would set you straight as to what was manly and what wasn't. And um, my family was, uh, you know, homophobic. And uh, one of the main corrections I experienced as a child was that I was too effeminate. And so I was constantly being corrected around gender presentation. Um, and, 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 you know, it was bewildering because I couldn't tell the difference between the gestures since I was using gestures that were assigned, but not in a, maybe a convincing way or who knows what, right? What, what that was. Since it wasn't coming from me, I was just trying to be in the world and I was being constantly uh, corrected for how that presentation made the family look. It wasn't even about me particularly, but about the presentation of our family and our family's achievement and our uh, place in the world. Um, and mainly what I, I got from it was that people were unhappy. So, So in some sense, what we're, what I'm describing is different than that. I think that you should be happy. I think that you should pursue things that mean something to you. And I think that you should do that even if they are, they're not things that are valued by our culture, particularly. Um, uh, you know, uh, there isn't a kind of even spread of resources assigned to activities in our culture, particularly in America. So it's, it's a little bit less like that in, in European society where uh, all sorts of activities fall within a range of a, uh, a living wage, let's put it. That isn't true in our country at all. So in fact, uh, the, we, we've suppressed the living wage to the point where we, we don't really have one anymore and, and for a lot of people. Um, and we have, you know, just, I like to call it the vacuum up theory of economics, where all of the money is just siphoned up into the, the top of the, the, the game. And then um, because of the inheritance laws is passed on generation after generation. And so it just consolidates the wealth in the, the, these increasingly small um, um, populations which is an effect of our government system, that if the 
the, the tax code were different, it wouldn't be possible to, to do that. And the, the money would be more uh, evenly distributed and people's uh, lives would be different uh, in the sense that you could make a, a, a way to be in the world that then also uh, left you with time, energy, and resources to actually pursue things that have meaning. It is, uh, in some sense, uh, the way our society is organized harder to do that than it might be, um, because so much of the time is just spent in producing what you need to uh, survive in the world. We, you know, the four basics, food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. So when you reflect on this through the attachment lens, some attachment systems, some family attachment systems that you grow up in intentionally develop joyfulness, uh, and some don't. We would call it in the attachment world expressed delight. So some um, uh, attachment uh, systems have it and some don't. If you look at secure uh, functioning people, express delight is one of the currencies of their relationship. And it's, it's, it's uh, uh, really an act of generosity that um, people in that system use. And so it's, it's ordinary. This is something to really understand because in some systems, there's uh, expressed delight, but it's so unusual, it takes on an extraordinary value. Whereas in, in uh, uh, secure functioning systems, expressed delight or, or, or joyfulness is really ordinary, like water or air. Uh, imagine um, growing up in an environment where people uh, expressed a delight in, in the way that you are without having to do anything, just your beingness, and that that's an ordinary experience for you, so that you just move around and people are constantly expressing their delight in the way that you are. If you grow up to be dismissing, then there is the experience of delight or joyfulness, but it's tied to performance and it's tied to um, uh, negotiating or transacting care. So it's a trade. It isn't free in that sense. I delight in you because you do something for me. It's very different than it just being common. Um, people who grow up to be preoccupied don't really know delight because it's never ex expressed in their childhood. It's not a currency that is operable. Um, uh, preoccupied people operate on helplessness that is to say they they attempt to convince you that they're helpless and that you need to help them solve ordinary problems when you're when you're smart about this what you figure out is that if you present somebody with a solvable problem and they solve it the need for proximity uh, vanishes and so it's better to uh, identify unsolvable problems and present those. Um, what is your experience of being delighted by somebody who every time you see them presents you with a problem that you can't solve? 
probably pretty low, right? <laughs> oh no, another problem I can't do anything about. <laughs> People really like puzzles, George. <laughs> People really like solving puzzles. <laughs> Have you ever solved like one of those 5,000 piece puzzles? Certainly. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, I have a friend who likes, uh, she likes to uh, go to the countryside and spend uh, a week there. And the, usually the first night she'll dump one of those 5,000 piece puzzles on a table. And then all during the week, everybody who's in the house goes through the process of solving the puzzle. And uh, 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 usually sort of halfway through it, all the pieces get placed. Um, Maybe she should become a consultant for the anxiously preoccupied then. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, my favorite is when um, somebody in, in, in uh, some kind of delight uh, withholds a piece. <laughs> So there's 4,999 pieces and, and there's one opening and then everybody's scrambling to find uh, the missing piece. <clears throat> Disorganized people uh, relate to um, delight differently. In, in some sense, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Kindness for them is an extraordinary thing, an expression of delight in them is an extraordinary thing. And so it's valuable. Uh, and the, the disadvantage in that is that what is really ordinary for some people is extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable for this group. And so they're, they're manipulatable or exploitable because of that. And then often uh, that is used uh, against them. And so they had the experience of uh, uh, delight being extraordinarily rare, but most often used as a way of harming them. So it creates a real paradox around that. Um, you know, you're kind to somebody who's uh, disorganized, then they're almost weeping from it, even though the gesture is ordinary and would be hardly remarkable in a secure system. And then the, de the desire for that leads them to compromise often in a way that, that a secure person would never consider. Uh, so, and particularly uh, when, when it's used uh, uh, in that way with children, they're very exploitable. So this practice where we're intentionally developing joyfulness uh, is very useful for this because if you don't have that that experience of of easy joyfulness of easy delight, this practice will uh, begin to train you into the capacity of it. it. It is a necessary component of your skill set in order to move into secure functioning. And so I really like the idea of of. Uh, this intentional focus on that, that joyfulness. And it really is this uh, uh, capacity to be joyful in somebody doing well, uh, whether you benefit from it or not, the currency of that. Uh, so they don't even have to do well, really, is what I'm saying. Just their beingness, just the way that they are, this capacity to delight in uh, 
them is really uh, valuable and useful if you don't have the skill for doing it. In fact, it's one of the the pieces that you need to be able to move uh, from insecure to secure uh, functioning. Um, the um, training of it uh, is um, finding that view, right, that holds the world in that way that's um, that you find that sense of delight, that sense of joyfulness. And then maintaining it in, in, in your exchanges with other people, viewing them through that filter, uh, and uh, which is the thing that begins to generate in you the spontaneous uh, uh, evocation of it. Um, and so imagine this. You, you, you know somebody, and each time you uh, walk up to them, as soon as they see you, there's a spontaneous evocation of delight in seeing you. How does that make you feel? And what does your reaction tend to be? You tend to delight in that, and then that expresses a, a kind of exchange of, of delight. Um, to explore and to find meaning and to do it in a way that enriches your life is often hard and effortful. And it takes a lot of doing uh, to get there. And uh, it takes a lot of risk to get there. And you can be knocked sideways emotionally and you can need to rush back to your secure base for help. And if you rush back to your secure base and their response is simply to light up with delight in seeing you, even though you're completely knocked sideways and need help, and they just light up with delight in seeing you and immediately begin to help you, this becomes that basis of which you really become uh, more and more willing to risk the, the finding of meaning Whereas if you come rushing back and they, they're startled by uh, how beat up you are and they don't want to uh, have to take from their own interest uh, time, energy, and resources to help you, um, how does that make you feel? The difference is quite, I think, stark. Um, usually what happens uh, when... Uh, 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 you don't have people around you that can provide that for you as you begin to limit your exploration because it's too difficult to be dysregulated and by the exploration. So uh, another thing to really identify is people who just think that you're awesome and light up with that. Uh, and then value those people and gather them around you so you have that support that you need and all you have to do to get it from them is to do it is to collaborate in doing it for them so there's a it's a it's a kind of mutual collaborative experience of being together is that all making sense so uh, we do always practice uh, first for the easy person um, the say it out uh, this way of practicing is um, from Sayadaw uh, Indika. 
um, easy person uh, in the traditional categories would be uh, teachers, mentors, or benefactors. Um, he noticed that in teaching Western students that teachers, mentors, and benefactors are not highly valued. <laughs> so they don't produce an easy experience of that. And so he renamed it uh, easy because that's what it's supposed to be. That's the category that it's supposed to be. Um, <clears throat> that when you think of them, the mind naturally inclines toward that. Uh, and the relationships are simple uh, so that not a lot else is in that working model. So who do you have that you just feel joyful for? Um, and then you begin to practice for self. One of the things uh, about generating positivity and the experience of positivity and how that uh, undoes self-hatred or self-loathing um, is that when you use uh, primarily negative states to regulate your experience, you build these working models of the self that have all of these negative states associated with them. And so you have the activation of self, which happens just uh, ordinarily in, in the experience of the world. But if it's packed with negative states, each time the self activates, these negative states activate and you can begin to develop an aversion to the experience of the self arising. And then really the only way that you can uh, prevent uh, constant activations of self is to withdraw from stimulus. And so a lot of people who have a lot of, uh, of aversive responses to the way that the working model of self is constructed is to, to, is to do less and less and be stimulated less and less so that they don't have to have the constant negative state of self. And so this approach is really to intentionally embed in the working model of self these highly positive states. So you want to practice for the self uh, a lot, uh, so much so uh, that uh, when the sense of self activates, it's a pleasant, positive experience rather than a negative experience. So I'd like to say, if when the sense of self activates, if it's not a pleasant experience, then half of your practice should be embedding positive states into the self experience so that you just have uh, that same sense of expressed delight when uh, you're, when the activity of self arises. Um, I know from my own experience, uh, using anger primarily as the way of regulating emotion, that the self-experience was extremely unpleasant to deal with because I, every time it arose, I would be in a state of uh, anger. Anger is exhausting. I don't know if you've parsed that enough to know, but the chemicals that need to be dumped into the system to generate the experience of anger uh, deplete the body. They deplete you know, the liver, the kidneys, everything that has to come into play to make that happen and then also to clean it out of the system once it's built. So uh, any questions about this before we begin uh, a period of practice? Okay. So go ahead and take your meditation posture.
So any comments or questions about the practice we just did? Christian? I feel like, um, and this seems to happen with loving kindness as well. Um, I can get a really intense mind state, but it seems very strained at the same time. Like I'm always kind of inflating it the whole time. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of find, cause I'll, I'll try and relax it a little bit, but then sometimes it seems like the mind state itself dims. So there's kind of the physical component. Um, um, it's like, it's like, I feel like, you know, like I must have a smile or something like a muscle. Some, I don't know if you have any tips for trying to find the relaxation within that without losing the mind state or, or if it's just kind of, you just keep trying until you do it. Um, maybe zoom in more so that you're, you're you, you, in some sense, you allow the mind state to expand and fill up awareness completely and everything else drifts into the background so that it becomes the sole object and the mind isn't distracted by the other ones so much and you then settle in in the first jhana you're efforting that's one of the reasons why it's unstable and then what you'll notice is that as you allow the the mindset it becomes the, the the complete experience of the present moment you just settle into it and it's in that settling into the second one that you don't have to effort anymore but it, it it's not so much a relaxing as a zooming in and that's zooming into the physical sensation or zooming further into yeah you could go energy. into the physical sensation or into the the view of the mind state is that does that produce a different experience or does that kind of both get you to the same place well the experience fills up everything so that everything else drifts further and further into the background so they're not distracting because i don't seem to have a problem with distraction um it just seems strained like it's right. ever present but it's strained it's there's an effort like just so, physically it just just like i don't know it just seems so in Maybe, maybe I have to think about this a little bit more in order to describe it, but. Some of it, uh, you know, the sense is that you drop. Mm. So maybe that would be something to do. You drop out of the effort just into the mind state. But what I notice when, I, when it happens is that uh, everything that could be distracting that I need to hold the attention away from uh, uh, falls out of awareness and only the mind state is left okay someone else so thank you for coming and thank you for your practice um we have a level two class which is starting uh, in september uh we've uh, added a link for uh uh, Donna, if you want to participate in the class, I know it wasn't working, but it's been repaired, so it is now. 
um, if you want to do that. Uh, there's one spot left with sessions and all of the other spots are without sessions. So if you're interested in having the additional support of sessions, there's just the one space left. Um, I think that there, there that we have a retreat, an in-person retreat in December. And there are eight spaces left in that, uh, if you're interested in that. We are going to do another level two in, uh, I think, November, sorry, level one in November, December. Uh, but uh, so three classes in the level one that should also be up on the website if, soon if it isn't already. Um, Saturday is the uh, meditation and attachment for relationships. So it's a, a day long around collaborative relationship skills. Uh, so uh, come to that if you'd like. Uh, what else? I think that's about it. Uh, anyway, all of that stuff is up on the website. Take a look. Um, I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll support us uh, by making a donation. It helps um, uh, pay my living expenses and also supports the work that Metagroup is doing. There's a link on the website, or if you got an email from us, there's probably one in there as well. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you soon somewhere on the path by now.